from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. The 51 that my daddy uh, ended up with, uh, we still have it. The other 300 some acres was sold or lost uh, during the depression or uh, floods or droughts or whatever. And uh, my daddy, uh, being a very conservative man, didn't do a lot of, he didn't do as much improving as he probably should have. Uh, mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I was really cut down in, in my dental class one day when I said this to one of my professors. I said, uh, my dad was very conservative. He, I think he could have done a lot more with his property. And he stopped me right there and he says, uh, let me tell you something. Your father living down there in Mississippi during those times in that Jim Crow environment, he did the best he could. And you're an example of that. He, he got you up and out of there and the rest of your sisters and brothers. He did the best he could. If he didn't build a new house or buy a new car immediately, that wasn't important to him. The important thing was to take care of his family. Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, DMD, author of That's the Way It Was, a memoir. Dr. Nero has been a very fortunate man, growing up on his father's farm in Greenwood, Mississippi, during the most segregated time in this country's history. He has managed to have a remarkable 45-plus year career as an orthodontist. Now semi-retired, Dr. Nero was the first African-American student and the first African-American to graduate from the University of Kentucky's College of Dentistry and the first African-American intern orthodontic resident at the Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. In his book, Dr. Neal writes about family bond by tradition, loyalty, love, and hard work. Also, he writes about the deep sense of responsibility and unshakable faith and confidence his parents instilled in him and his four brothers and sisters. I'm Johnny O. Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, That's the Way It Was, a memoir with Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, DMD, in Black America. I think I was telling one of my patients yesterday, I said, I think I was the only guy in my class who hated for school to be out because as soon as school was out, I had to go to the cotton field and do that. Uh, yeah, you were, there was always something to do. There were animals to manage, cotton to pick, or cotton to chop, or uh, uh, gardens to to to, uh, to to raise, and it was an ongoing thing. And um, we had to, you know, we had to do our chores, or else we didn't get certain other privileges. And this was sun up, sun down. We'd come home from school, we'd walk home that three miles, and we would go in the house and change our clothes. We would uh, get a bite to eat, and uh, then we'd go out in the field and do whatever season it was, either picking cotton or chopping cotton until the sun went down. And our parents were out there doing it at the same time and maybe some other helpers. And then at the end of the day, when the sun went down and doctors, uh, we would come in and, and, uh, and do our homework. And we had to study about kerosene lamps. We didn't have electricity at that time, most of that time. Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, DMD, was born into a world where African-Americans knew their place. In Greenwood, Mississippi at the time, there were two different communities, one black and one white, and seldom did the two mix. Dr. Nero's grandfather, John Tyler Nero, a free slave, purchased over time 400 acres, in which his father inherited 41 acres, so their condition was somewhat different from the other African Americans in their community. If ever a term was more appropriate, it was it takes a village to raise a child. Out of the 49 graduating students of the all-black class of 1956 Broad Street High School in Greenwood, Mississippi, 
30 went on to graduate from college, and a number of them went on to earn advanced professional degrees. By the way, the noted actor Morgan Freeman is a product of Greenwood, Mississippi. In his book, That's the Way It Was, Dr. Nero writes about the community and how it shaped the man he became. Most of it was what was called bottomland. It was swamps and woods and things like that. The, the more precious land probably wouldn't be sold to some ex-slaves. That, that was for others. So they went and did this, and they cleared the land off, and they ended up with about 400 and some acres over, over a period of time. And um, uh, they had uh, my grandparents had eight children, and my daddy being one of them. And they got to a point where when my grandparents died, they had a little bit of dissension there in the family, which I think happens with most families, those crucial situations. And they decided to split the, the land up among the eight children. And my daddy got his 51 acres and the other seven got their, their 51. Uh, the 51 that my daddy uh, ended up with, uh, we still have it. The other 300 some acres was sold or lost uh, during the depression or uh, floods or droughts or whatever. And uh, my daddy, uh, being a very conservative man, didn't do a lot of he didn't do as much improving as he probably should have. I, mm -hmm. I was I was I was really cut down in in my dental class one day when I said this to one of my professors. I said uh, my dad was very conservative. He I think he could have done a lot more with his property. And he stopped me right there and he says, uh, "Let me tell you something. Your father living down there in Mississippi during those times in that Jim Crow environment." He did the best he could, and you're an example of that. He, he got you up and out of there, and the rest of your sisters and brothers, he did the best he could. If he didn't build a new house or buy a new car immediately, that wasn't important to him. The important thing was to take care of his family, and that's what he did. So I never talked about that anymore. <laughs> that was from one of your advisors at, at the University of Kentucky Dental School, wasn't University it? University of Kentucky. Absolutely, right. yeah. yeah. Dr. Sheldon Rowan, he's right. passed on now. He was... And he, he set me straight right away, so I never, uh, I never talked about that in that vein again. But anyhow, we, um, we walked to school, um, Mr. Henson. Uh, call me Ben. Mind if I call you John? No, no problem. Yeah, okay, good. John, we walked to school. Um, I was about 12 years old before my dad could afford to have a transportation, automobile transportation. So we walked to school um, six back and forth six miles a day down first a dirt road and then a gravel road. And and uh, our neighbors who, by the way, our neighbors on either side of us were white uh, people. The Brufers and, uh, and the they, Connollys? They was in the Connollys, yeah. They were, you've read this book, haven't you? We try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, we, um, we'd be walking to school and uh, and the, the, young, the white kids had a bus to ride on. The school bus would come and pick them up, but they would be black kids didn't have a school bus, so we had to walk in. And one of the main reasons for that is that uh, the, most of the farmers out there were living on some uh, white man's plantation. Mm -hmm. So they went, to, they went to school when the plantation owner said they could go to school, and, and then they, they had schools out on the farms. You know, they had their, their schools out there where we used to call the country school. But my dad was not a part of that. He owned his own land, and he didn't want us to go to the country schools because they opened when the, the land uh, when the landowner wanted him to and closed when he wanted him to. So we went regular school hours. 
and uh, which was uh, very fortunate for us, I feel. And uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to answer your mom and dad came from two different worlds. Tell us how Absolutely. they came together. Yeah. Well, my mother, uh, my dad, again, was the, the son of a slave, and uh, he, uh, his father saw to it to, there were two of his sons, and my daddy being one, that he wanted to, he thought they had the best chances of going to school and going to college and all of that. And uh, my daddy went to uh, prep school in Meridian, Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, and had to travel about, I guess, about 150 miles to go there by train, probably. While he was down there, there was a, uh, a sister school, uh, his school was called Meridian Academy. I'm not sure what my mother's school was called, but she was going to the girls' school, and they met. And uh, he he graduated a lot ahead of her. I, I never get the full idea. I know they were 10 years apart age-wise. Right. And he might have been a little late getting there. She might have been early. I don't know. But anyhow, they decided that, uh, that they were going to continue their education. She went. He went to um, uh, Philander Smith in Little Rock, Arkansas. And she went to Knoxville College in Tennessee, and they had decided that uh, uh, they were going to get married once he did his college and his military obligation. And he was doing the military obligation in World War One there, and then the war was over. And she was a uh, sophomore in college, and she gave her scholarship over to her cousin, and then they got married and then in Greenwood. And uh, my cousin Willis had a large farm at that time, and he had a church, and a school and a grits mill and a, I think he had a cotton gin and a lot of those type things. He was quite a wealthy man. And my dad and mother got married in his church on a Sunday, I believe. And um, on Monday, my dad took my mother to the cotton field. That was their honeymoon to pick cotton. And um, my mother told me uh, when I was a teenager, she said, Ben, if I didn't love your daddy so much and wanted to honor my vows, I would have left. I would have left the first week. And they stayed together for 54 years before he passed. Give us an idea of what was life like growing up on the farm, considering that if you live on a farm, there's work to do all the time. All the time, yeah. I think I was telling one of my patients yesterday, I said, I think I was the only guy in my class who hated for school to be out. Because as soon as school was out, (laughs) I had to go to the cotton field and do that. Uh, yeah, you were. There was always something to do. There were animals to manage, cotton to pick, or cotton to chop, or uh, uh, gardens to to to, uh, to to raise, and it was an ongoing thing. And um, we had to, you know, we had to do our chores, or else we didn't get certain other privileges. And this was sun up, sun down. We'd come home from school, we'd walk home that three miles, and we would go in the house and change our clothes. We would uh, get a bite to eat. And uh, then we'd go out in the field and do whatever season it was, either picking cotton or chopping cotton until the sun went down. And our parents were out there doing it at the same time and maybe some other helpers. And then at the end of the day, when the sun went down and doctors, uh, we would come in and, and, uh, and do our homework. And we had to study about kerosene lamps. We didn't have electricity at that time, most of that time. So my younger sister and I had a lamp at one table, my older sister and my older brother had a lamp on another table, and my mother and father had a lamp, and they would read their Bible or read the paper. And uh, that's, uh, that's the way the, the, the things were at that time. And then once you did that, you'd take a little bit of a, uh, a bath, and then you'd go to bed and you're ready to get up the next morning at uh, maybe 5 o'clock and get ready to start all over again. Well, you had it somewhat easier since you was the, the last born 
But David Clyde and Mary Jean and your other sisters, they had a pretty standard routine, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, they did. They were the ones, however, uh, I think uh, my dad, my, my dad never wanted us to be farmers. Mm-hmm. He saw it coming that a small farmer was not going to make it and a small black farmer was certainly not going to make it. So he had he had us. He wanted his boys, one to be a physician, one to be a pharmacist and one to be a lawyer and come right back there in Greenwood and practice. <laughs> he wanted the girls to go to college and find a nice uh, gentleman and marry. Yeah, the older kids um, had it a little bit rougher than I did. However, I saw I saw my, my parents in there. My mother was 40 when I was born. My daddy was 50. Mm-hmm. And I was, a, um, I was a surprise child. And uh, I saw them uh, wearing down more so than the others did. Right. And I uh, I picked up a lot of things and did try to do more and as much as I could to uh, to keep them from having to do so much because they worked pretty hard and um, and as I said early on in the book one of the primary objectives in my life was to leave the farm to get out and to get to get an education get into a profession and build my parents a nice comfortable home while they were living so they could enjoy it because they did, couldn't do that for us because they spent so much time spent working and, and getting uh, education funds for the children i was the only one that they didn't have to pay to go to college i had a football scholarship if you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Dr. Benjamin Dumjo Nero Sr., DMD, and author of That's the Way It Was, a memoir. Dr. Nero, you talked about high school, Broad Street High School, and how the white high school, Greenwood High School, you all never interacted athletically or any other time. Absolutely not. Yeah, that was total segregation. Uh, we were on one side of town, they were on the other. Uh, I had classmates who lived sort of in the town on the outskirts of town. Mm-hmm. They had to walk past the white school every day to come over to the black school. Uh, when they were when they were walking past the white school, some incidences would happen sometimes, but not so much. And when they got into the center of Greenwood and just on the outskirts of Greenwood heading for the black school, that's where there were no more sidewalks. <laughs> mm-hmm. They had to walk in the streets and uh, dodge the cars, and we had no. Basically, in the in the in the black section of the city, there were no sidewalks, and uh, it was just a. It was. It, I look back on it now, John, and and uh, the title of the book is "That's the Way It Was," and that is the way it was. But when I look back, it frightens me sometimes as to to the way things were and how things could have been a lot worse had we not. Uh, uh, realize, I guess, where we were, we were um, conditioned, I guess, to the mm-hmm. circumstances. And, uh, you know, you just very seldom got what might be said out of line. Uh, we, we knew what the resp- our responsibilities were, and, uh, and we went that way. Uh, being that my parents were landowners, we didn't have a lot of problem with uh, others the way farm- itinerant farmers did. So we were sort of spared of that. But it was a difficult time to live. And we were only eight miles away from Emmett Till when Emmett Till got killed, and uh, that was my junior year in high school. And uh, what a devastating blow that was for us. But uh, I, I spoke with a classmate of mine last year who mm-hmm. still lives down there, and I asked her, I said, did we talk about Emmett Till's death and all of that in class? She says, you know what, Ben, I don't think so. 
I know our parents would say, don't say it, don't talk about it. And that's the way it was, you know. You just hushed up and uh, because, you know, that could be times where you have classmates who go missing. You have no idea where they've gone, that you don't hear from them anymore. And those kind of things were happening back in those days. Your brother David got caught up in that kind of situation, yeah. didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. Some lady, a white lady, said that uh, he had made some remarks toward her, or, or my parents didn't like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I, the, from what I got, that she said that he had said something to her or, or did something, and, and uh, I think my mother told me that it was the lady who, my brother was a, was a uh, really a sh- very bright, good-looking man, about six foot three or so, and uh, a lot of personality and smarts. And uh, he, yeah, I think he said to her mother, she tried something with him, and he uh, refused. And uh, I think that's what sort of turned him off. So a friend of my dad, who had happened to be ha- happened to be white, came out and said, "David, uh, there's a rumor going on in town that uh, they call my brother Little David." That little David uh, uh, tried to, did something to some white woman over here, and if I were you, I'd get him out of town. And um, so they had to figure out a way to get him someplace so that I imagine they would be watching the bus station in my hometown. So uh, my parents never liked to talk about it, but I kind of figured out they went to another smaller town and got him out of there, and he went to Washington, D.C. and lived with uh, cousins. And then he went into the NYA, I think the National Youth Organization at that time. Then he went into military and stayed in there for a long time. Came out as a captain after the right, war. Right. I wanted to ask you, do you all still have post office box three six three? Yes, we do. <laughs> That's what my grandfather had it. <laughs> it's there there, three six three. Yes, absolutely. So it's uh it was a it was a uh, an interesting life, uh, John, and uh, you know that was just could have it. A lot of other things could have happened, and I just thank God that my my mother and father had the presence of mind to be able to negotiate their, themselves and us away from terrible circumstances that could have occurred. Uh, can I just chat with you? Well, Go ahead. Go you ahead, Doctor Newell. Yeah. I was talking about the our neighbors. On one side was the Conleys, and they were people who were probably eighth, I mean, uh, had probably graduated from high school. On the other side were the Bufords, who mm-hmm. probably had not, uh, the adults in that house had not attended high school. And they didn't particularly like each other. And we live right between them. So we were the, the mediators there when things would come up. But they were, they were, they were, they respected my parents because my parents were they considered highly educated compared to them and my parents treated them with respect and and uh, they treated us the same way we still uh, couldn't go in their front door when we if we visited them which we very seldom did if i my friend nell who who was a very good friend of mine she was a year older than me uh we should play together all the time and uh, when she when i would if i had to go over to her house i would have to go in the back door when she came to my house, she came in the front door. She used to come and have meals with us, you know, weekly and daily sometimes because her mother was and father were working outside the home. The other, the Bufords, were the same thing. You, If you went to that house, which we very seldom did, uh, you had to go in the back door. And uh, when you, uh, I think when they went a... When, when a white girl got to be about 16, you were, start, you were supposed to start calling her Miss something, Miss Nell or Miss... Betty, but we never we never did that, and I, I don't know we 
they never expected us to do it for some for some reason. But those were the the kind of things that went on. And and as I tell you before, I look back and wonder how we um, how we kind of survived it. I had a um, there's a a um, a magazine in Mississippi called Delta, mm-hmm. and the CEO of the magazine. Um, I wrote him and asked him if he'd be interested in uh, in my putting my book in there as a book to read. And he said, "Yes, I would." So I went down there, and uh, he um, he did put it in two two for two months. And uh, and I noticed what he said uh, about me. Doctor Nero did this in this Jim Court environment. He came out without bitterness and anger. And I think I hadn't thought about it that way. But uh, we were never taught to be bitter or. or angry or call people names and that kind of stuff. We were never taught that. And uh, and I'm kind of happy you recognize that because I didn't come out with bitterness. I came out with some fear, with the lack of understanding of certain things. And and um, But our parents kept us a bit above that. When you graduated from high school in 1956, mm-hmm. there were 40-something individuals in your class, and you said 30 went on to obtain college degrees? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, several went on from uh, graduate degrees. Yeah, uh, John, we didn't have too many choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could you could stay there and maybe become a school teacher, but you had to get a, a degree to do that. You could pick cotton and chop cotton, but you were only making three dollars a day or two dollars a hundred pounds. So we had to we had to move on, and uh, and most of us most of us did it. And it was due to our parents and, and those wonderful teachers that we had in elementary and middle and high school. I don't know where they came from. It's like they came from heaven. <laughs> you know, They just dropped down there and said, this is what you're going to do, and you're going to do it as long as you're in this school. And we listened. Uh, you know, in the, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead and finish the statement. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, my schoolmate, uh, Morgan Freeman, was one of those people, and he was a guy who used to Right around campus, and he was a, a prankster and doing things he shouldn't have done. And and one of Mrs. Williams said to him, "You know what? I'm, I forget what she said. She's going to make him into a, an actor or something." And she started him in drama. And uh, look at him now. That was the next question I was going to ask you about uh, Morgan Freeman. I think he graduated a year be- prior to you. Year, be- year before me. Yes. Mm-hmm. How did you break and, uh, your leg in your junior year in high school? I kind of missed that. Yeah, I was playing football. And, uh, yeah, I knew you were playing football. Was it at practice or was it at the game? No, it was in a real game. We were playing uh, Vicksburg, Bowman High in Vicksburg, Mississippi, one of the top Big Eight schools. We had a we had a conference, Big Eight conference. There were eight black schools that we, that we uh, that played against, uh, seven played against. But anyhow, we were playing in our, my hometown. It was raining that night, and uh, I played quarterback, and well, back in those days, you had to almost be a 60-minute man, but they used to get me out of there uh, often as they could because I didn't like playing defense. So <laughs> so this particular time, we were uh, up against the goal line stand there against Vicksburg, and they were tough. And I was in a linebacker position. I had never played linebacker in my life, but that's where I had, had to be because of the closeness of the goal line. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a single-wing offense. and. And uh, they ran everything toward me, not because I was there, but I, I, I looked up and I saw, I thought I saw about 15 guys coming my way blocking. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground and my leg was, was twisted in a, in, a, in a position where I knew that I was, I had some bad news there. And next to the last game of the season. And uh, 
I just put my mother on a bus to go to California that morning. It was on a Friday. And uh, I went to the hospital and they set my leg and I uh, stayed in the hospital for about a week. And on my way home um, in the ambulance, by the way, my dad never wanted me to play football. He wanted me to be in the academics all the time. And one of the coaches talked me into it. On my way home in the ambulance with him, he says, Ben, I want you to get back out there next year and show him you can take it. I almost fell off of the gurney I was on when he <laughs> said that. I could not believe I said, are you serious? Absolutely. I want you back out there, and I want you to show those guys you can take it. He didn't want to see his, uh, his baby boy, his last child, defeated that boy. And you know what, John? I think that has, that has traveled with me ever since that particular day. You know, I think it is one of the best decisions he could have made, and I think he knew it at that time, too. So I went back out and played the next year, and uh, and uh, then I went to I sort of I went to Tougaloo in Mississippi, but that's kind of a long story. And I, I ended up going to Kentucky State a couple of years later and played there for what well, I played there for three years. My three first years. year, I didn't didn't have a great relationship with the coach. Um, and who was the coach? Tell us who the coach was now. Yeah, coach was uh, Joe Gillen. He was the father. <laughs> he was the father of. Um, uh, Gilliam, who played quarterback with Pittsburgh Steelers, right uh, back in the day, right right around Bradshaw's time. Anyhow, this little guy was about seven or eight years old then, and he was out there asking me after practice, come pass to him and kick to him, and then I should do that with him. Well, and, see now, uh, but the coach, pardon me. Now go ahead and finish the statement because I I want to ask this other question. Go ahead. Yeah, he would ask me to, to play catch with him after practice you know he he wanted to play quarterback too you know and i was a quarterback there and i was teach him how to punt how to hold the ball and how to run and throw it he turned out to be a, a fantastic quarterback went to tennessee state first right backing up to before tougaloo you took an aptitude test with another individual i don't know if it's clarence or not and Charles you blackman. okay yeah blackman and you all yeah. were Admitted early if you so chose to attend Tougaloo, but as you say, your dad told you you need to go back and 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 your yeah. senior year and, and finish that. The other thing was is that one of your first lucky breaks is that when you were at Tougaloo and then you eventually transferred to the University of of, of Kentucky, mm-hmm. assistant coach. No, Kentucky State. Kentucky State. Excuse me. Assistant yeah. coach knew the new coach which allowed you to have an opportunity to play quarterback. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I um, I called my uh, coach that was, that coached me in high school, the mm-hmm. assistant coach, and told him, right. I, said, I said, Coach, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was going to school at Pepperdine out there, and I had to work. I was working the graveyard shift and, and trying to keep up with those California kids in the classroom, and it wasn't working out. And uh, I had a couple of buddies that were going to school over Southern Cal, uh, Willie Woods and Don Buford and those guys were mm-hmm. football players there. And we should play together in the park in the summertime. And they said, why don't you come on over here, man? You can, uh, you know, you can, you, well, with your skills, you ought to be able to, you know, to, to latch on. But they didn't realize I, um, I, I still didn't have 100% mobility in my leg that I had broken. And uh, I had a good arm. I had a good toe. I could kick the ball a mile and uh, punting. Uh, and I went over there, and the uh, coach uh, said to me that he, he didn't think that I could fit into that program. I wasn't fast enough. I did some sprints, and I think the water board was fast than I was. I didn't have mobility in, in that leg. Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, DMD, author of That's the Way It Was, a memoir. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, 
email us at nblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.